when people talk about connecting the dots, we're seeing the dots now. Mm-hmm. So the big picture will come together later. But if we talk about data breaches and things like that, say, well, I haven't seen any massive catastrophic thing. I don't think we see that yet. The pieces are still unfolding. Mm. The technology that it's going to exploit it on a massive scale, the data banks that are already available, um, the compromises we've made in our privacy and safety and sharing that data is all already out there. And so where that all comes together, I think we have yet to see. Sometimes at a dinner party, I've had a few glasses of wine. People ask me a question like this. I say, we are in the early part of the movie where they show you headlines and they flip through it and it's getting worse and worse and worse. I think we're in the headline flipping part of our Hmm. world right now. An expert in the economics of data and the dark web, an advisor on cybercrime and security, and respected specialists on geopolitical risk, trends and their impact on businesses and society. Welcome to this week's guest, Manish Walther Puri. Born in California to physician parents, we discuss the impact of Manish's upbringing as part of the Indian diaspora, how the cross-cultural influences conditioned by his school, sports and pastimes prepared him for the world he now inhabits. We explore how curiosity, serendipity and creativity impacted Manisha's journey to the intersection of data, the dark web and the cyber risks facing businesses, communities and society. I hope you enjoy this inspiring but somewhat sobering episode on serendipity, cyber risk and security with Manish Walther Puri. Thank you very much for being part of the Impossible Network podcast, Manish. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Great. So we're going to jump right in. Before we get into your life of data, risk, and the dark web, I'd like to understand a bit more about your childhood, where you grew up, how your parental support, guidance, and direction affected you and help you navigate your journey through technology and data. It's a really curious place to start. I like it a lot. So I grew up in Northern California to Indian immigrant parents. And in many ways, I feel like my upbringing is typical. And then there are some ways that I think it's probably pretty strange. Uh, The ways that I think it's typical, um, I was in Northern California. There are a lot of uh, families and young parents that had moved there from all over, but uh, pretty strong Indian diaspora. And both of my parents were physicians, and there was also a strong contingent of Indian and Pakistani and other physicians there. So uh, we lived in a part of the Bay Area that is now connected to the rest of uh, the East Bay, Oakland, San Francisco. part? In the East Bay in Pleasanton. Oh, right. Okay. And at the time, there was no, the public transportation out there was BART. There was no BART. So we were kind of off on our own. That ends up being important. I've asked my parents many times, why did we live there and not, for example, Fremont, where a number of the Indian families were living and growing up and going to school. And for them, they wanted some distance from their pediatricians. They wanted some distance from their practice and, and other things. And that distance is something I always had to cross. And so part of my journey was going between different communities. And I'll explain about that in a moment. A few ways that it wasn't typical. My parents generally made decisions by what was going to be best for us academically. Mm-hmm. That was first- Us being you and- uh, My sister. Oh. Yeah, older sister. Uh, so first, foremost, and sometimes only, myopically even academically. So we the school that I went to is the best school that they could find at, at the time and, and could get to. And then in middle school and high school, I went to a private school in Oakland, and that was a, a great school as well. 
And the motivation there was always the best academically. Ways that I think it was a, a, a little bit atypical. So I did extracurricular activities, but I did a lot of extracurricular activities. And I, I think that's typical if, if anyone listening to this is children of immigrants, this will sound very familiar. Where it wasn't is that I didn't stay with any of those extracurricular activities. I was telling someone the other day, I started learning guitar and flute, tabla, which is a, a drum. Um, I learned some Spanish. I swam. I was in Boy Scouts, played tennis and racquetball. And that's, I say that, what a privilege to have all mm -hmm. those things. But I didn't stick with too many of those. So, sounds very similar to my upbringing in <laughs> East, East, Coast, East Coast of Scotland, actually, <laughs> starting um, something and not finishing it. Yeah, so that is something that followed me. And I realized that later. Wow, I'm, I'm really good at starting. I'm not always great at seeing something through. Now, there is one thing I did see through Boy Scouts. I became an Eagle Scout and very proud of that. But the other thing that happened as a result of this is, so my family was in Pleasanton. The Indian community and otherwise was in Fremont. And my friends and otherwise were in Oakland and Berkeley. And Pleasanton is a pretty affluent city. And the town next to it, Dublin at the time, was fairly different, blue collar. So little league, soccer, all of that. was Boy Scouts was with those families. I was moving between these different communities. And I learned a lot about not just privilege, but also status and class and perception and what we now know is code switching. You know, switching between those different ones to be comfortable in those different environments. Yeah. How did your parents specifically go about instilling a sense of self-belief or a willingness to put in the work? You know, I don't know how deliberate it was, but again, feels fairly typical for uh, immigrant parents. As soon as you were about to hit the bar that was set for you, it was moved up. So if you got good grades, then it was, what about extracurriculars? Mm -hmm. If you're doing extracurriculars, it was, what about other leadership things? Or it was, what kind of better child can you be? You know, it, constantly not not reaching the bar, which never meant- Never resting on your laurels. Yeah, there was never taking that for granted. It was almost like, just as you met the expectations, now it was time to surpass them. Of course, that, that meant different things about pressure. And w what was true about my parents and my mom particularly, and a lot of immigrant women is they- they were risk takers. Mm -hmm. Of their families, they were the ones that the family bet on. So they were equal parts hardworking and enterprising. And this is something I- What do you mean they were the ones that their family bet on? A lot of these families had one person that they could afford to rally around to send them to mm -hmm. school uh, or to graduate school or to go overseas. Oh, I see. And it was yeah. pooling their risk and- betting on the one who they believed had the best chance. I'm reading to that a little bit, but mm -hmm. that wasn't untrue in my family, and I know that's true in other families as well. And that's not saying anything about the other siblings. It was, wasn't was always a collective consensus decision. It was a factor of circumstance and a number of other things, timing. But in my case, um, you know, both my parents were physicians, and there was just an expectation that I would be a doctor. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of adorable at parties. I was six or seven, and... The other Indian parents, we'd call them aunties and uncles, would come up to me and ask me, and I sort of had this shtick about wanting to be a neuroscientist and a neurosurgeon. <laughs> and that's adorable if a seven-year-old is saying yeah. it. 
uh, although maybe a little disturbing too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you discover that? Was it implanted in you or did, were you reading? Like a Manchurian candidate yeah. <laughs> as to become a, a doctor? Yes and no. I think I think for them, um, and by them I mean my, my parents and their generation, there were a few careers that were promising and steady and stable mm. and being a physician was one of them. And it was reliable. You could go to any country and say to someone, if your leg is broken, I will fix it and please feed my family. You know, that that's not true of very many other professions. And you can immediately start to build social capital wherever you are. Uh, that's also true, you know, of, of some other professions, but not quite as much as with physicians. Mm -hmm. You said they were both physicians, so you were yeah. just carrying on taking the family sort of tradition. Yeah, in a way it was that and it was it was also them I try not to say this in a derisive way, but with all due respect, they had cryogenically frozen some of the values, and this is true of diasporas in general, I think, frozen the values that they were raised with and then brought them over, imported them, and then said, okay, this is what we're going to do now. And and so at, at home, there was a, one set of rules, and, and then outside in society and otherwise, there was another set of rules. And negotiating between those, contending those between those two was always challenging. And I think that's, again, kind of typical with kids who grew up in this country with a cultural identity as well. One thing I want to try and understand is the way you're describing it sounds like a very parentally controlled and directed upbringing mm -hmm. where there wasn't really much scope for error, for going down the, sort of the, the wrong path, making mistakes. I suppose how free were you to go and explore mm. the world yourself, mm -hmm. either in play, in the home and outside the home that allowed you to establish your own identity, your sense of self? Yeah. So this is turning into a really fantastic therapy session. So I'll just write you a check. We'll see what kind of insurance you take at the end. You know, that's something that no, I just... No insurance. <laughs> no insurance. Out of network. Dang. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> um, you know, that's something I, I've had to revisit because it was definitely challenging. There wasn't really unstructured space. There was a lot of play, but it was structured uh, through those extracurricular activities. And that was stressful at times. There is one set of extracurricular activities that I haven't mentioned thus far. And this, I think, is the first time ever I'm talking about it in public, which is fine. I have no shame about it. In fact, a lot of pride. All my friends know this story. I've just never really shared it in another environment, which is, and I'll set the context here. Uh, both my parents were working, and my mom was also shuttling us around, um, us being my sister and I. And I, I learned um, many years later, decades later, why this was the case. But my sister was in dance class, and, and, and it was a school that was at dance school and goes without saying it was all girls. My mom convinced, cajoled, coaxed the teacher to let me into the school. And so I was the first and only boy in that school, as far as I know. And this is the early 80s uh, in <laughs> Northern California. And there were no accommodations made for me as a boy, which was great. It was mm -hmm. the ultimate meritocracy. No adjustments in costumes, for example. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I did tap, jazz, and ballet. Oh, wow. I hope you've got the photographic evidence. Uh, there is, and it is epic. <laughs> it is epic. There is a curated gallery in, in my home of my uh, dance photos, and they're truly spectacular. Um, sparkles abound. Uh, <laughs> Now, I knew at the time as a you know, six, seven-year-old, I was like, I must speak of this to no one. You know, I knew even then uh, that that was an exception. Definitely uh, not something you talk about the little league games. The no, <laughs> no, not at all. And, and later, you know, I had some of the, the prototypical American experience, little league mm -hmm. and, and Boy Scouts. And then there was this. Where that set me on a trajectory is I love to dance. I love choreography and dancing and lots of different kinds of dance. And that continued, continues today. 
So that was instilled in me early. Um, and that I don't think that my mom set out to give me, but then in later years appreciated what that creativity in, enabled me to do. That's interesting. I want to ask, and I've asked the other guests, about the most defining moment or memory of your childhood. Hmm. Is there anything that springs to mind? I think it was moving between these communities. Mm. I thought you were going to say the tutu, but, you know. I I mean, dancing, I had developed a reputation for doing a Michael Jackson impression Uh in our community. You're you're not the first person to tell me that in the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, I mean, there is a significant point here for me around the things that are coming out about Michael Jackson now are what we're mm. allowing ourselves to consider um, because he was a childhood icon for me mm. in a number of different ways. But I think it, it was really about moving between these different communities. And I had to spend time. Like I, before I could drive, there was someone driving me. So there was 30 or 40 minutes between these places. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of time and space to think about moving between those different communities. And like I said, there were different classes, races, socioeconomic groups, geographic locations, microclimates. And I learned how to adjust uh, to those different communities and find my different identities. It took a while to reconcile those identities, but because they were multiple for a while, mm-hmm. being Indian in the Indian community, being American in one way in the local community, being American in another way, being a Northern California kid in another way. Um, So I really explored and tried on a lot of different identities before being able to reconcile into hopefully one somewhat cohesive Mm -hmm. one. And do you think that that's prepared you and given you a certain ability that's benefited you in your career? You know, that's interesting. I feel fortunate that I don't feel barriers between industries or cultures, geographies. And I I don't mean that in a self-aggrandizing way. Mm -hmm. I I really mean it in a way of um, it's possible to find connections with anyone pretty quickly if you're open to it. Mm. Um, It could be that they're also a sibling or a parent or where they grew up or when they were born or their favorite color, the kind of food they like. There's so many different ways to connect with people. So I I guess I learned how to connect with people quickly but meaningfully. So what was school like for the young Manish? Elementary school, I'll I'll break it up just very quickly into three different areas, elementary school, high school, and, yeah, and, and okay. college uh, and university. Um, so elementary school, I was a very good student. Uh, this also is another story I've never told on the record. I was raised Hindu, and my parents sent me to a non-denominational Christian school. The academics were very good, but the school itself was pretty intentional about the religion. Some people who have gone to school there as well called it fundamentalist. I think that's a little bit strong, <laughs> but it, it was pretty pretty heavy. So I grew up pretty early negotiating between two faiths and two religions. And so practicing Hindu at home at the weekends, and yeah. <laughs> and then converting to Christianity during the week. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I if you ask about some formative moments, I remember converting to Christianity multiple times in my childhood. There's a really interesting matrix there, somewhere between mm-hmm. sort of the religious side and the community side, and the Absolutely. blue color and all that. That's... And you know, it was confusing, to be very honest. It was confusing because there are two authorities in your life when you're younger: your your parents and your teachers. And if one of them is telling you this is the way, and anyone who tells you otherwise, um, doesn't have your best interest in mind or is a, uh, a tool of Satan, then mm-hmm. that makes things complicated in trying to reconcile. So 
at the same time, I was very fortunate to be exposed to that. I think the scripture in the Bible is is beautiful and meaningful. And I can also remember being confused about reciting the, the parables of Jesus and things that I had learned about the Bhagavad Gita mm. um, and those those stories. I confused the stories, not because I was confused, but because they have very similar morals mm. and very, very similar but then, tales. But then again, all, all of the major religions do. Yeah. So when you I, really I, break them down. I got to experience it. It was confusing initially mm. and then and very and enlightening and meaningful later. Um, and, and there were very few kids of color. Mm-hmm. So I was also singled out a bit of being the one that was going to reach out to my community and save my community. So there, there was pressure both from my parents and some of the uh, teachers in my life to be that person. I remember a specific moment in music class when the music teacher was showing pictures of the Beatles, and this is when people were playing records backwards, and she had said that you know, some of these bands like ACDC and The Road to Hell, which couldn't be more literal. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but when you play backwards, it's The Road to Heaven. Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> so. um, is She was showing a, a slideshow of the Beatles and showed a picture of a Hindu deity. And that was the first time I went, wait a minute, I know that. And this, this isn't, these two things don't go together. And so I started to question. So I had a crisis of faith a few times before I was 10. And the saving grace for me, and people may be surprised to hear us, but I'm very proud of it, was Boy Scouts. Mm-hmm. Boy Scouts was the place where they said, whatever your faith in God is, talk about it. So that was the first place I had to be an advocate for Hinduism and, and just explain. And I got to represent being a Hindu. And as long as I was reverent and could, could communicate that, it didn't matter what the label was. And that, I think, is exceptional to what people think about Boy Scouts and otherwise. And that was, that was really meaning. It was the ultimate calibrator for me. That was very mm-hmm. meaningful. Talk to me about the transition from school to university? So the, the middle school and high school I went to was a non-denominational college prep school. And there I got to experience exposure to a wide range of religions, Unitarianism, and a number of Jewish classmates and very close friends. I always wanted my own bar mitzvah uh, because it looked like so much fun. <laughs> and I remember being, I, so I was 30 to 45 minutes away. I mean, yeah, why not? I mean, why not, Christian, right? You've oh, done goodness. a bit of Hindu, you just mix in I don't know, where's Islam. my party? Yeah. Um, so uh, I remember being in seventh and eighth grade, and my parents were getting tired of commuting during the during the day or during the week. And then I would do a bar mitzvah on the weekend. They were like, "That seems like a party." I was like, "This is an important religious moment, and by ignoring this, you would be disrespecting them. I need to go to this party, mom." <laughs> uh, so, uh, but really, I also appreciated that exposure. And then the school itself was really wonderful in instilling a sense of curiosity and intellectual curiosity and encouraging to ask questions and explore ideas in a, in a I won't even say a contrarian way, but in a really critical way. And I can talk about that more, but where it all went awry yeah. was going to college for me. I was on this trajectory and pathway and I got to Cornell and I, I loved the university and I kind of lost myself. A bit. It was a, a massive university, and I was uh, overwhelmed by all the possibilities and the people. Not only did I get distracted, I started a lot of things and didn't finish a lot. So I really struggled academically all throughout my college years. And I took some time off. I worked at a startup. I worked on my own. Worked at a um, in sales selling computers. Uh, went to different universities and and really kind of bounced around. And um, and that was something that I struggled with, and that even plagued and haunted me for years. Mm-hmm that I was having such a tough time academically. And it wasn't 
like I was getting all bad grades, what would happen is in one semester, I would get A's and C's. Mm. So it wasn't that I wasn't able to execute or accomplish or be interested. It was there was something else going on. So just a consistency or was it a, a lack of, did you get distracted and bored or was it um, a, so a minor there was, there ADD was some issue? Of, yeah, I mean, you could say that, but that feels symptomatic. Uh-huh. You know, like what's underneath that? And yeah. I've spent a lot of time interrogating that. So I could say, yeah, I lacked focus, but okay, why? What What was underneath there? And part of that was knowing myself and what I got energy from, what I was interested in, what activated me, how my how my brain worked, what I was good at learning, what I wasn't good at learning. And sometimes my willingness to put in the hard work. I I won't sugarcoat that at all, that I had to learn and relearn some of that focus, effort, discipline. And that took me quite a while, quite a while to do. And so then I was at UC Berkeley. What was wonderful and, and fun and funny and challenging and difficult is that I was... I kind of joked with people that I'm studying abroad, but at another university. <laughs> um, and then because of administrative academic things at Cornell, they had a limit of the number of credits you could bring in from outside. And UC Berkeley had a particular track that you had to go through junior college. So I had basically two years of Cornell and two years of Berkeley and was trying to figure out where can I just finish up. Mm-hmm. Um, so my college experience was fractured and fragmented, foundering and definitely full of failure. And, and, what, and what courses were you actually doing? Oh, I was all over the place, Mark. So you were jumping between... I was all over the place. I will tell you when the pre-med dream fell apart. Mm-hmm. And as freshman year, I was taking chemistry at Cornell. And I was working really hard to just pull a B minus. I had not gotten a B minus before. It's working really, really hard. And there were other kids that were kind of working hard, but they just got it. Mm-hmm. And that was not only frustrating for me, but told me something like, I'm going to work hard at whatever I do. I know that. Shouldn't I work hard at something that I already have some intuition for, Mm -hmm. some knack for? So then the whole world of possibilities cracked open. I wouldn't say spilled in front of me like, ah, the world is my oyster. It was like, oh, no, I have to go figure out something else. This, This pathway I had for myself isn't there. So I took classes in economics, psychology, government, social work, business, yeah, I was uh, in South Asian studies and international affairs. I, I was all over the place. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until later in my career that I could own that. That's all right. That's that's a little bit of the way I operate. There, there were definitely some hard lessons for me in that. And my economics major was felt like just barely a major, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> just barely what I could pull together. But I was grateful for, again, interdisciplinary exposure to different ways of thinking. I reference... I took a class on gender and psychology and in social work on death and dying. And I, I still reference things that I've learned in those courses. And it's given me a foray to take on complex ideas like risk or geopolitics mm-hmm. or data breaches, or the psychology of cyber criminals, you know, that, that those require interdisciplinary approaches. And now in retrospect, I feel fortunate that mm-hmm. I had that. Yeah, it just makes me think I would talk about Catholic cho- choice of music as a Catholic collection of disciplines that you've derived inspiration, knowledge, and uh, insight from that mm-hmm. clearly has, as you said, has prepared you and armed you to deliver but on. But I, I will say that's... But an, it wasn't deliberate. No, wasn't, and, and, and for anyone that's listening that is, you know, in, either recently in this or otherwise, that's in hindsight. Yeah. In hindsight, the pathway looks paved and straight. And at the time, and surely otherwise, it was... Rocky and curvy with some cliffs for sure. 
Well, that segues nicely into our question around serendipity, about the chance encounters or happy accidents or serendipitous events that might have changed the direction of your path. Do you think that this time at university was some form of serendipitous um, experience? Yeah, there were, I mean, I got to experience college life on three very different university campuses. Cornell and Ivy League School, UC Berkeley at Mary Large, and in Berkeley, California, and then in San Francisco State, which has its own type of community. And I, I'm grateful for all the people that I met, foremost, mm -hmm. actually. And I have good friends from each of those schools. And I have important experiences that were important experiences, not just academically, personally, um, and psychologically, emotionally, from each of those different environments. So to be in different learning environments was there. In terms of the role of serendipity, so this gets a bit to faith, hmm. I guess, if one believes in God or the universe. It's not that there's no room for serendipity, but then you see yourself as part of something larger or that you're headed in this direction. I think of it as constructive collisions. Hmm. Um, I did a lot of colliding. <laughs> it's funny, when we were thinking about the name of the podcast, we were going to call it Random Collisions. Mm. <laughs> but I, I think they're constructive in the end. Uh, it's... I got knocked around a lot, mm. and I knocked myself around a lot. Well, the way you describe your upbringing, the, sort of the, the fusion of faith, the fusion of communities, and then the fusion of academia, mm. it seems to be that these things have all collectively come together to create a very diverse character or personality and a perception to maybe see things the way that other people don't see, which may lead us to talk about how, you, how your career evolved. Well, that's very kind of you, and I would... I would like to think that's the case, and it it also reminds me of class privilege opportunity. Mm -hmm. And there was a long time I, I carried a burden that I had squandered the privilege that was given to me mm -hmm. um, of, of getting to an Ivy League school and not having a straight line from there. I, I carried that with me for a very, very long time, and I felt incredibly guilty about it mm -hmm. that I had expended that. Now, not so much. So talk to me about the the transition into academia and then from academia into professional work. Yeah, it was a wandering pathway for sure. I mean, deliberately wandering. I don't, I, I can't say that I got deliberately lost, but I surely wandered. So I worked at a startup in 2000 and then I sold computers at Gateway Computers mm -hmm. in Berkeley, California. And then after school, I started looking at, at policy institutes and I worked for a really unique think tank in Berkeley, California, looking at North Korea and South Asia and security policy and nuclear nonproliferation. So that was a pathway that I was on for quite a bit and in, in the subsequent years worked at a, a, a number of different think tanks including in New Delhi and, and otherwise. But working on, on issues like North Korea in Berkeley, California was, was really fascinating. So let's just fill in the blanks. You covered a whole diverse range of subjects at university. What did you finally graduate with? In, in economics. In econ so and that economics. was expedient, mm -hmm. to be to be fair, um, that I had the most number of credits and that I could get to that completion. But I still took classes in international relations, in uh, development, and in business. And at that point, I realized that that it was a great opportunity to, to widen as much as I could. Mm -hmm. So that prepared you to be able to walk into a think tank? Um, no, not exactly. I, I had to I had to work my way in and and, and prove that I could focus on uh -huh. this area. And then I really deepened on South Asia and understanding the dynamics there. And some of that was a personal decision that my family is from the northern part of India where uh, a number of families in 1947 had 
you know, one of the largest Very migrations in, in human history, born in family, some family born in what is now Pakistan and come over to India yeah. and, and vice versa. So I, I wanted to understand that. And I looked at Kashmir and, and, and some of the sources of this conflict. Um, and, and it was an interesting way to exercise some of the personal divisions and try and take an analytical approach to understanding them. Again, back to the idea of fusion, one of the programs that I was working on was synthesizing media and reporting from various countries. So this think tank put together reporting uh, on North Korea from North Korean media, South Korean, Japanese, Chinese, Russian, and American media. And that was really powerful. And we did something similar with South Asia, uh, different kinds of reporting from Indian newspapers and, and, and Pakistani uh, media about what was going on. And there was a there was a there was a real power and synthesis there. Mm. You so want to understand almost a pre-social media filter bubble. Uh, like a, a, other way around, actually, it was about integrating the different media uh -huh. sources. Okay, and and understanding what their angles were, and here's the story underneath it, and so that you could start with that, and then say, oh, I see how this this newspaper might report it differently or otherwise. So in working in think tanks and then in, in in nuclear issues, I wanted to go to the subcontinent not only to be there as it was hap as and understand it up close, but also spend some time with my family. What was funny is this was um, after the dot-com bust, but still Silicon Valley, I was coming from there. And my family in India was initially very skeptical. What is our American cousin doing coming here? Some of my family and friends in India were trying really hard to get to the US, particularly Silicon Valley. And here I was going back and I wasn't there to get married. Uh, so they were very confused why I was there, and it, it took a couple months for I think it to come through that I was like, I'm I'm here to to learn and to be here and to be with you, you know, and to spend time with my family. I didn't grow up with a lot of extended family around me, so it was really special to be there. How did you develop your focus? That seems to be your current focus in risk analysis mm -hmm. and the dark web yeah. and data. Yeah. So there's one other big hop in the middle there, and and this is maybe a story about serendipity is. Um, so I ended up working at a large think tank in Washington, D.C., and then I went to grad school at, at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. An important story about that. It took me three times to get into that school. So if you have anyone listening now that is, you know, like, oh, oh, you just went to grad school. No, no, it was not that. The first time I applied to a bunch of schools and I got into zero of them. The second time I applied to a smaller set of schools after some few years of experience thinking I was more qualified, I didn't get it again. And the third time I thought, okay, I'm going to try and apply one more time. And if I don't get in, then I'm not meant to go this way. But I did. And that was a really important trajectory booster for me and uh, a really wonderful place personally and psychologically as well, because I met some amazing people, found a phenomenal community of people working in international affairs at the intersection of law and politics, development, security, media, business, and got that multiplicative approach. And then I met the person who was going to be my life partner there as well. Mm -hmm. So that definitely had a significant shift and an important moment for me because it wasn't just about my career anymore. And it was, it was about our life and our careers. And we we're both professionals. Mm -hmm. And so how do we negotiate our careers together and, and not, not have to compromise either for one another or feel like the other person is compromising for us? Right. So subsequently, I, there I started to explore and understand geopolitical risk and explore that. And that is about um, how relationships between countries and really tension between countries affects business operations uh, and investment. Mm -hmm. 
And so that required multiple lenses. And and the years after that, I'll fast forward through a little bit here. The years after that were bouncing around a lot of different places. I spent some time in South Africa. Um, I was consulting independently. I was unemployed for a good portion of that time. Um, At this point, married? Uh, not married yet, mm-hmm. uh, wanting to get married and saying, okay, I need to really land something before I can ask this person to spend the rest of my life together. And and then also we we were both a bit unconventional that we weren't going to get married so that we could do certain things. We were going to do certain things together and make decisions together so that we could be mm-hmm. married and make that commitment. And then the Arab Spring happened. And that was transformative for me because just, okay, so just prior to that, I was working in Liberia on an election observation mission. And I had been a news junkie and an analyst up until that point. And here I had some real on-the-ground experience with a fast-moving situation. And in seeing the reporting about that, I saw what wasn't being reported and what was missing and that things were moving so quickly. And between that and understanding how people think about surprise and uncertainty and risk and the role of information and at this point, social media, during the Arab Spring, I started watching and was looking at Twitter very closely, not just to figure out what was going on, but as Twitter started to organize and sort out and verify the information of what was happening. And the consultancies that were out there, whose job it is to understand and, and, and evaluate this uncertainty, were neither faster nor better than what you could get from Twitter. So suddenly there are these experts that are supposed to be really good at framing uncertainty. And here was this crowdsourced people just talking about what's going on. And that was as good and in some ways, if not better, not the analysis per se, but in terms of understanding where Mm -hmm. things are going in a fast moving situation. Yeah, as a barometer for sentiment. and Absolutely. So then I started to look for and ended up working at a startup that did big data analytics Mm -hmm. um, and using that tool and platform to look at risk and intelligence analysis and forecasting and um, uh, uh, looking at elections and coups and political transitions, rapid political transitions, um, ones that were unforeseen in a way. And and so, so such as well the Benghazi attack mm-hmm. um, was not a political one, but a, but a moment. Elections in Greece and in Egypt subsequently, and the the rise and emergence of the Muslim Brotherhood, and being able to say, and effectively being able to say, we don't know when we're going to know, but being able to think about things temporally. Mm-hmm. At least at this point, we know this amount, and we can say, we can go back and and say, well, when did we learn that? When, how far ahead can we look? So using data as a way to augment and deepen inquiry. And that was not by me alone. I want to be very clear just to credit the, the data scientists that I worked with there. I, as an analyst, had really developed the tradecraft of understanding what to ask. Mm-hmm. And they, as data scientists, knew how to ask of the data. And it was that combination that was very powerful. That's interesting. Uh, so after that, I was then consulting on my own for a bit independently, and I started working with analysts looking at risk and intelligence and the open source tools that were available to them mm-hmm. to, to answer some of these questions. Because um, at that point, there was a proliferation of not just the data, but the tools to analyze that. And then I worked at a, a large bank um, and worked in their uh, global intelligence and, and analysis team looking at the intersection of terrorism, fraud, geopolitics, and and cyber investigations mm-hmm. and how those came together to impact the the organization. Right. And so that was a really good opportunity to see how these things fuse together 
because it was about the seams there between cyber investigations, fraud, terrorism, geopolitics, like what a, what a portfolio. And we weren't the only group looking at this. There were a lot of groups looking sure. at these different things. We were looking at how they came together. And that was really one of the moments where I started to understand the interconnectedness of risks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after that, I started to focus more on cybersecurity. I looked at cybersecurity as an aspect of geopolitics, but really I started to focus on cybersecurity and data privacy, data protection. And there then I worked at a, a, a startup focused on dark web intelligence and um, and then have been consulting on my own since then. Uh, and so got a chance to to apply risk and intelligence frameworks to a number of different contexts and mm. size organizations and types of scenarios. I heard this um, in a podcast I was listening to that someone said, what we're seeing is crime and military action is now independent of geography in terms of reach and speed. Mm. And that's been happening within commerce and communication for some time. But now that it's happening in crime and military action, where that intersects is interesting. What you're doing is with something like cyber cyber warfare and therefore obviously and, and where criminal activity overlaps, mm-hmm. that that is now the center uh, of focus that organizations are trying to catch up to just even embrace what's happening because obviously the criminals and the military organizations whether it be in China or Russia or North Korea and Iran or probably in the US and Britain as well, all actively got divisions of teams working on this. First of all, are we living in a, in a world that is more risky now because we're entering a phase where there's, we know nothing? There's no, there's no governance. There's no Geneva Convention. Is this period of uncertainty opening us to greater risk or do you just think this is another period where risk always exists? Yeah, that's a, that's a really thoughtful question. Let me start by defining how I think about risk mm. because I, I think lots of times we talk about it and it's, it's a pretty dynamic concept. So the analogy that I use, and it's, it's rudimentary and that's intentional. I'm not trying to be trying to oversimplify it, but it's one that I can keep in my head uh, when I'm thinking and talking to other people about risk is to picture a bridge over a river. And in that river, there are some crocodiles and there's some people standing on the bridge. So in that picture, we can look at several different aspects that comprise risk. Assets, vulnerabilities, and threats. So if we say that the assets are the people and that the vulnerability is that the bridge is old and might collapse, and the threat is the crocodiles, the risk is that the bridge collapses, the people fall, and the impact from that risk is that they get killed or eaten by the crocodiles. That whole picture is risk. Now, what if we said the assets, we added more assets, we added 30 people to that bridge. How does the picture of risk change? Or what if we said the bridge is brand new? Some people would say, oh, that's great. The bridge is brand new. It's, it was just built. And other people would say, wait a minute, uh, it was built with new technology and this new synthetic material. We don't actually know what it is. So maybe the vulnerability is worse. What if you add more crocodiles? What if you take away the people from the bridge? Mm-hmm. How does the picture of risk change? And just to flip it completely, what if the assets are the crocodiles and you're trying to protect them and their ecosystem and the threats are the people or the bridge collapsing? And then you might put in guardrails or a photo that says, don't deviate from the pathway or please don't get too close. So you see this picture of risk 
changes its dynamic. I'm saying that because I think where we are is having both a better and worse understanding of risk. We have a better understanding of some of the threats that are out there and perhaps our vulnerabilities about them. I believe we have a worse understanding of the assets because the assets are, a lot of it is our data and our privacy. That's that's the asset we're trying to protect ostensibly. People don't know how to value that. How do you, they know that it's worth something. Mm-hmm. They just don't know how to value it. Yeah, I've heard you talk um, uh, about the the need for us to reframe the way we think about the data breaches and I've heard you talk about loss aversion theory. That's right. Do to get wanna... back to your, to your question though about nation states and, yeah, and this yeah, combination. Sorry, yeah, yeah, to, to get back to that. There's definitely an acceleration of capabilities, of offensive cyber capabilities. Mm-hmm. There's a diffusion and commercialization of this technology where we're seeing a shift in the geopolitical landscape because before, and there's a loose analogy here, so don't make it too close, but there's a loose analogy between proliferation of nuclear technology and the proliferation of cyber capabilities. Now, where this breaks down, there's a lot of places it does, but one of the places it breaks down is there is a sophistication and a whole apparatus that came with nuclear non-proliferation, pardon me, nuclear proliferation. And with cyber capabilities, there isn't necessarily a whole apparatus that comes with it. Um, there still are two, there's a key component around you could you could attempt to regulate dual use technology for nuclear non for nuclear proliferation but you can't regulate code and it's very hard to control someone who works at a government agency and is is has sophisticated capabilities and then goes works for an independent contractor that is hired by other countries and now you have a that first tier of countries and you and you name the list pretty mm-hmm. much there's going to be a second and third tier of countries that it's not going to take them 10 years to develop this capability. Mm-hmm. They're going to get it in two or three years because they can buy it. Yeah. So the commercialization and diffusion of that, to, or, but they might not need to, yeah. right? They might have a full service capability to deploy. Um, and I'm not trying to fear monger here. It's just when I think about what's going to shift our geopolitical landscape, that is definitely one component. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's um, affecting the trade wars and that we're currently encountering here? Yeah. So I I do think that we're in a geopolitical transition. Mm -hmm. So we're going from being a unipolar world to a multipolar world. Mm -hmm. Savvier thinkers than I have been saying this and observing this for a while that we're going to transition to a multipolar world. That transition is not going to be smooth Mm -hmm. to go from the the one center clear pole to three or four others. You know, policy decisions, whether they be military, trade or otherwise, used to always flow through Washington. Mm -hmm. And now they don't need to. And they don't even need to flow through London or the West. Mm-hmm. They can go through Beijing or just straight to Beijing or between Beijing and Moscow and Delhi. Yeah, I'm sure it would be a, a, a very interesting podcast to have to talk about this in relation to just the Brexit debate alone. Mm. I know we haven't got time. One thing I did want to ask, and it's just I love this whole area of risk. But the one thing I'd like to get your perspective on is why hasn't there been some other catastrophic attack or event or whatever that event might be uh, since 9-11, something even bigger. So I'll give you an example. Why haven't we seen a dirty bomb attack? Why haven't we seen incidences of swarming drones dropping um, anthrax or any other sort of crazy catastrophic attack that could clearly happen with the right resources in the wrong hands, either bad actors or rogue states? 
That's an excellent question. I don't know that I have a very satisfying answer. I will tell you what I what I've observed in the time that I've been following this is that the community of people who work in safety, security, intelligence has widened and deepened to include people who are very compassionate um, and empathetic. Mm. So it's not just about the hard security, borders, guns, walls, and bombs, but it's about the softer elements, integrating parts of the population that were disenfranchised before or using some more effective techniques to counter violent extremism and using thinking about how we might deploy technology to assist us in providing a more resilient society. So I, I think there there is something to that. That's the optimistic answer. Yeah. The pessimistic answer is that there are when people talk about connecting the dots, we're seeing the dots now. Mm-hmm. So the big picture will come together later. But if we talk about data breaches and things like that, say, well, I haven't seen any massive catastrophic thing. I don't think we see that yet. The mm-hmm. pieces are still unfolding. Mm-hmm. The technology that it's going to exploit it on a massive scale, the data banks that are already available, um, the compromises we've made in our privacy and safety and sharing that data is all already out there. And so where that all comes together, I think we have yet to see. Sometimes at a dinner party, if I've had a few glasses of wine, mm-hmm. people ask me a question like this. I say, we are in the early part of the movie where they show you headlines and they flip through it and it's getting worse and worse and worse. I think we're in the headline flipping part of our mm-hmm. world right now. So what would your response be to someone like Steven Pinker who wrote that book? The, the book about how, how he's saying that the world is a lot better now than it's ever been. Mm-hmm. And projecting that forward, mm-hmm. logically, you'd say it's always improving. There's less death, there's less disease, there's less sort of strife and war. But the the cynic would look at him and say, and would go to Steven Pinker and say, yeah, but that's because of the traditional, the old century, the previous ways sure. of com- conflict, of confrontation types of crime conflict have changed. Yeah. And we're just not seeing, as you say, we're seeing the dots, but we're not seeing the sort of the bigger yeah, picture. I, I think of, I go back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And when, and we still have massive amounts of our population worldwide that are vulnerable to having a, a warm place to sleep and nutritious meals and access to potable water. Mm-hmm. All those are still a concern for a large part of our populations. That said, as we worry less about that level of needs, then we move to the next level of needs about uh, security and comfort mm-hmm. and those others. And the compromise of privacy is is not a a privileged right. It's one that everybody has access to, but we in the world where our is more developed in in what we're focused on, have the luxury of just having to worry about that. Mm -hmm. But if you are in a refugee camp, you're going to worry about your family being fed as opposed to the privacy of your data that might be being handed over. So it's it's a trade-off really. And and that's that's how I would answer that is that it depends on what metric you measure. Um, Some people would argue that, you know, we had privacy before and now we don't. And we had to worry about 
large-scale conflict, and now maybe we don't as much. So there's a shift there. And that goes back to the interconnected and dynamic nature of risk. Remember when the mm-hmm. assets change, yeah. the picture changes. So just a final thing on this, what would your advice be to any listener about steps they should take to prepare themselves for to reduce the risk uh, or mitigate the risks related to, let's say, the dark web and um, how they should think about their personal data? Hmm. I think it really begins with identifying what are your assets. And I will make that very practical. I would ask anyone, what is it that you would most hate to lose? That in some way or another is tied to data. Mm-hmm. Think about how that data may be compromised, whether it's your livelihood or the safety of your family, your privacy, democracy, your sense of what's real and what's not. I don't want to go so far as to say they're all under attack, but they're slowly being compromised. And the data that is connected to them is already being compromised. By state actors or just rogue criminals? So or this might be contrarian to say, but it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter by whom. Uh, if you want to try and resolve it, yes, then we need to understand where does the responsibility lie. But let's just start with that it's happening. So the first thing is to take an inventory of what is most important to you and where that data is. Mm -hmm. And then we can talk about how do you mitigate or whatever else. But in terms of you as a person, understanding what are your most precious assets and which data is tied to that and how well do you understand the protection and exposure of that data. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Um, Are you optimistic for the future? When I talk to younger people, Mm -hmm. uh, because they are willing to learn faster. Adults are worried about looking stupid, so it's harder for them to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What I'm going to do is jump into our quickfire questions. If we have time at the end, I'm going to come back onto this. And and if we're not, we'll maybe follow up and do another podcast specifically about this because I've got a whole ton of questions. Okay. I wanted to ask you about this. So it's not the circumstances that define you, it's your response. What response to a set of circumstances um, have been pivotal in your life? I think my ability to shift where the locus of control was. So uh, by that, I mean externalizing my reasons for failure as opposed to internalizing them. And I had those flipped around. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I would feel responsible for failure when in fact was external and vice versa. I would assign it outwardly when I was responsible for it. So really trying to calibrate not just where I had control, but... um, what I could learn from my failures. I think an important personal tenet for me is failure, it's only a failure if you fail to learn Mm -hmm. from it. And part of that is growing up as a child of uh, enterprising, hardworking immigrants in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. You know, well, you just asked the, you answered the next question. <laughs> How do you view failures? That's good. Uh, yeah. um, who have you met that's most surprised you? And you don't have to name names if we don't want to do that. We can uh, So I'll, I'll describe the type of people. People who are, and I've had the chance to work with them and, and otherwise, people who are accomplished or powerful and famous. And what's most surprising is how good they are at listening, how humble they are, and how they always continue to create. Uh, I think that combination has been a uh, really inspiring for me. Okay. Who's inspired, who's inspired you and why? Okay. Well, the, the, in that way... There are some people both close to me and and far from me. And when I say close to me, I mean, I have two friends who are a a brother and a sister that I grew up with, and they're now parents, as am I. And throughout life, they've 
showed me how to be a better family member, a good parent, a more present partner, an accomplished professional, and pursue all of those without trading off between them. Um, so the two of them together in, in different ways and at different times have inspired me. Mm-hmm. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? Or what has made you reevaluate yourself? Hmm. I think some pretty epic failures, some pretty important moments personally and psychologically. And, and, and that hasn't happened immediately. I think an important thing for me was that the really significant learning was going to take time and was going to take work. And I had to be unafraid to do that hard work on myself, whether that was through therapy or working on myself in other ways, uh, finding my footing intellectually and academically, professionally, and really calibrating my perception of myself. I think understanding where my weaknesses were and being okay that I had vulnerabilities and, and how those would express themselves and how my history contributed to that. Okay. We believe very strongly um, the team and the impossible network about the importance of education and the way mm. education needs to evolve to prepare ourselves for essentially a very dynamically changing world with AI at the center of it. Mm-hmm. If you were given the keys to the mayor's office or the White House um, or even um, if you come back to India, you never know, you might just uh, yeah. find yourself in New Delhi. Ah, that'd be great. Um, what would be the key changes you would make to the education system to improve future opportunities for the children of this country or India? Um, there's a few things. I love this question. This is a great question. Uh, and these are all personal of answers, course, yeah. but you yeah. know, I would introduce ideas like stand-up comedy and uh-huh. improv earlier. I would encourage students to write fake news stories and try and fool other people by manipulating love that one. information. Um, really try and convey and get them to understand the idea of satire. I would have them write notes to their future selves um, and, and think about their trajectory in the future. If it was here in the US or even in India, I would do exchange programs instead of with other countries. I would do it with other states mm-hmm. uh, because I think uh, both of those countries contain multitudes within themselves. And sometimes people know the world better than they know their own country. And so I would do an exchange program across states. And then... Really, if I could, I would create a blind spot commission. I would have kids be, in, you know, younger folks be a part of things like, what are we missing? What are the adults missing? Your job is to tell us what our blind spots are. That's great. Sounds like there's part, part startup there. And there's also sort of like a, <laughs> there's a, a book ready, ready to be written about the sort of the, the, the parent's guide to a risk-free future. <laughs> but, well, a risk, I, I would say a future that is a managed risk. Managed risk, yeah. It's never risk-free. Okay. It's always oh, managed. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll, find the, we'll find the name of the book later. <laughs> um, what principles do you stand by? Uh, a few. I mentioned one, failure is failing to learn. Mm-hmm. Everything is a negotiation. Information is power, for sure. That people are not meant to be possessed. You have your relationship uh, with yeah. the person and someone else has another relationship. And then in, in interpersonal relationships is um, give, 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 take. I like it. Yeah. What hard choices have you had to make that have been tough at the time but turned out to be the right decision in the end? I think when I was at university and figuring out what to do in terms of going back to Cornell or going to Berkeley or ending up in San Francisco State, no one could tell me what implication that was going to have on my trajectory. And in fact, everyone was telling me that I was making a mistake. Now, I wasn't fully opting for that decision. That wasn't full volition. Some of it was by process of elimination. It was like, well, I don't think I can go back. That I can't finish my degree there or whatever else. 
But that was very hard to see past. That was a sharp curve. And I remember reading this directory, uh, and they used to have this printed book of people that worked in Washington. This is for a period of time where I aspired to work in Washington. And it had their, their background, one line about their background, where they got their degrees. And I remember looking in there and, and when I was thinking about some of these school, schools in my trajectory, I was like, I'm never going to be in this directory. And I, they're never going to be able to, I'm not, I'm not going to make it. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to see it. And it wasn't always the decision. What I realized at that moment was that it wasn't about the decision that I was making. It was how I was responding to what was in front of me. Um, and if I could be try and be true to myself then, then I could look back and at least not fault myself, but I could actually start to learn and get better at making decisions for myself. All right. Where do you go to discover new ideas or when you need space to think? To discover new ideas, I know people really don't like conferences. I think people are going to the wrong conferences, Mark. I, people, people are going to the wrong conferences. I go to some really fun, cool conferences, and I'm not saying that is I, I have the privilege of doing that, but they're out there and they're, they don't cost very much. I went to a conference on cognitive bias and data visualization. I went to a conference where there were no PowerPoints, no PowerPoints, mm-hmm. just people presenting ideas and talking. Um, the opportunity to go to another conference focused on a dig- the idea of a digital Geneva convention. And, and I think this comes from being open to those experiences uh, and, and being able to, to take a risk in, in an event. In terms of you know, calibrating or, or thinking differently, I tend to go to the ocean, um, to the the beach, um, or at least close to water, um, because there is a boundary that I, I I like standing at the edge of the water and looking over the the water and seeing the sky above it. It's the same sky that's above mine, but it's something that I I can't quite get to. So it gives me space to think and throw ideas and like I'm skipping stones. Okay. Who are your influences? Hmm. Either in personal life or career? Yeah. Um, well, career-wise, I've been fortunate, and I've also cultivated a lot of mentors and advisors. And I separate that in two ways. Mentors are people who know you, and advisors are people that know your industry or career or vertical. And, and I think it's important to have a council of both of those. And mentors don't need to be people who are... 15 or 20 years ahead of you, that's great, but also people who are peer mentors. And some of my protégés have become mentors of mine, have become peer mentors. So I think that that has been important for me to always to always have those people to bounce ideas off of and, and calibrate my perspectives. Naming some names, Philip K. Dick is a writer that uh, continues to inspire me to today and influences my thinking about the direction we're headed. The other group that I, I draw inspiration from are people who are focused on their craft. So performers, dancers, choreographers, comics, actors. And to the extent possible, I try and, you know, I know some of those people personally and I draw inspiration from them because they're focused on their craft. Mm-hmm. How does creativity manifest itself in the work that you do? Well, that's a very good question. So I'll give you two. And the reason I ask yeah, it yeah. is a lot of people perceive creativity to be the domain of the field of the arts. Yeah, of course. And not the sciences. So I think creativity is it can is something we all have to think about in relation to the work we do and you're in a very analytical mm-hmm. uh industry and profession mm-hmm. but i'd be intrigued to understand how it manifests itself in you 
either identifying risks or solving problems. Applying ideas or trying to apply ideas and reaching for ideas from one discipline and applying it to another. Mm -hmm. There's something I discovered a while ago called the TRIZ method, and it was it came from TRIZ. And um, I think it was a Soviet scientist was studying patents. And basically what he looked for is a pattern of the types of problems that were being solved and how they were those solutions could be applied in a different domain to a similar problem set. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that ability to draw not just models and frameworks, but say, yeah, economics applies to cybersecurity in the way that we value data. Yeah. Or when I think about cyber criminals or fraudsters or how people try and build up and s- spend on their cybersecurity programs, there's an element of psychology there and fear. Um, and what does cognition have to do with how deep fakes are going to undermine our sense of integrity and reality? So I think it's it's applying from different disciplines and feeling comfortable experimenting a little bit and, and pushing a little bit. And, and, and also saying, I understand this might not be rigorous. There's another part of risk analysis, forecasting, and otherwise that it involves thinking about worlds that don't exist yet. Mm-hmm. You know, we sometimes joke in, in risk and intelligence, we're professional worriers and, or we're worrier warriors if you want. Uh, and the job there is not to imagine all the possibilities. It's to imagine the possibilities that people might not have thought of yet or don't, or might dismiss for other reasons. Mm-hmm. And so that involves manifesting technologies or ideas or disciplines or verticals or something to impact in a way that would take advantage of our blind spot. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you have to outthink the people that you're, the adversaries of the people that you're advising. But there is also an element you sometimes just have to use just sheer human guile to think if I was in that situation, uh, and I was a science fiction writer writing a plot, what would be the most unlikely yeah. event possible? And that's creativity. Yeah, I know. I think that science fiction plays an important role there. And then the other aspect of it is, you said being able to outthink your adversaries. Well, that necessitates that you can think like your adversary. You have to at least be able to do that. Yes. That is not easy because it, adversaries have a lot of advantages and it's a particular mindset you know, that is entrepreneurial and is exploiting the seams that, that organizations and, and governments and otherwise leave. Uh, and so there's an element of empathy there mm-hmm. as well. And not just being able to put on the proverbial, you know, black hoodie, which no one wears a black hoodie. This person you should meet is Michael Ventura. Okay. He's written a book called Applied Empathy. And ah, he has a, a strong views on, on the role of empathy and applying empathy to solve problems. Cool. And, yeah, and no, I think that's where, that's where a lot of solutions can be drawn from. Uh, the other aspect of it, though, is I'm a deep appreciator of a scientist who is alive in the 50s and 60s named J.C.R. Licklider. Mm-hmm. And he had this idea that he, he wrote a seminal paper called Man-Machine Symbiosis. And essentially it was humans are good at one thing. creativity and cognition, and computers are good at another, volume, scale, computation. And it's not about who's going to beat whom. It's about how do you put these together in a way that one is going to amplify the other. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we develop these more sophisticated machine learning and deep learning tools, we as humans could probably learn from them. You know, it would be great to learn how to play chess against Deep Blue. You know, we could probably learn some things. Mm -hmm. And and so it's, it's that more of a stretching our heuristics and, and cognitive capabilities, I think. Okay. Uh, back to the quick fire questions. Mm. 
how do you keep up with technology, given it's your core to your discipline? Um, so I try, I think of it as like a balanced diet um, of information, experience, and questions. So information, I try and balance, have a, try and have a good nutritious diet of old school news and using some new social media, reading research papers. Um, uh, I don't get much of my news from social media or information or research. I, I'm curious sometimes if someone puts something forward, but I don't use that as a indicator for myself. Uh, then experiences, like I mentioned, conferences, interactions, discussions like this, mm-hmm. you know, being being open to meeting you has opened up my eyes to a lot of different ways to think about curiosity. And I'll bring that into my next conversation. And then the third is the interconnected nature of risk. So I really try and maintain diverse community of people around me, people who intentionally think different than me are getting different signals than me about what's going on. Uh, and being able to sound out some ideas. Do you see this? How do you see it? Do you see this affecting your industry or your vertical? So now I have a group of people that I can say, how is artificial intelligence manifesting in your industry? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of different industries that I can look at that. And I someone can talk about it from a philosophical perspective or an ethical perspective or an engineering perspective. So I, for me, that's really important to maintain a, a diverse uh, community of people around me. All right. Uh, the impossible question, what would your advice be to someone who's just about to graduate or go to study or has a dream, a goal, a grand ambition, but it's been told it's impossible? I think there's two questions I would give them as weapons. The first is to ask in return, why not? Mm-hmm. And tell me why you think that's not going to work. And lots of times when people say, well, because it hasn't been done or because there's this and this and that, the answer is, well, that's, it's not that it's not possible. It's just not possible yet. Yeah. So that- Time's differentiation. Yeah, yeah. That, that word yet is yeah. very important. Mm-hmm. That, so that's one question. Why or why not? Why do you, why do you think that? Tell me, tell me where that comes from. And the second, and you, you can't ask this question to somebody, but it's a question that they should internalize and then try and figure out Socratically if they mm-hmm. need to, what's the fear? There's some fear that people have that is preventing them from envisioning a world where what this person is thinking about doing is possible. So what is that? That fear is based in something. What is that fear about? Because if you're going to do this impossible thing, you will need to either surmount or address that fear at some point yourself. Mm-hmm. That's great advice. What book would you like us to offer um, the listeners that come up with the best comments in the comment section? Oh, that's a, that's a wonderful question. I think a, a book that I send to anyone that starts a new job, it's called The First 90 Days. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that in your first 90 days, you want to figure out what your learning agenda is. And it depends on the kind of job. Is it is it a n- new organization? Are you turning something around? Are you accelerating something, scaling something? And depending on that, you have a different learning agenda. Uh, so I, I read that book every single time I start a new job, and it's a bit of a choose your own adventure. I don't read it cover to cover. It reads differently every time. So uh, that would be wonderful. That's great. I've never heard of that book. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'll be reading it myself. Cool. Uh, who should we interview next? How many people can I list? Give us a few because we, we might not get, we might only get one of them saying yes. Oh, my goodness. I have such a list for you, Mark. So, okay, Carmen Medina is at the top of this list. Okay. Who's, um, who's Carmen? I should know. I'm going to give you the whole list and then people can Google. It'll <laughs> okay. be fantastic. Go on then. Uh, Carmen Medina, 
Tiffany St. James, mm -hmm. Kavita Ramdas, uh, Trey Boynton, Christina Sass. Oh my gosh, there's so many people. Manisha Bajaj, Allison Shapira. I gosh, I have so many people. Um, Sam Logan, Sharon Squisani, Carrie Bechet, Kim Swennen. Uh, I I could go on. Kate Broddick, Mina Harris. I have so many names for you. I just think I've encountered the, the person with the broadest network of anyone we've interviewed. Well, I've benefited from the the wisdom, kindness, and compassion of all the people that yeah. I just listed. Okay. Well, so we'll, I would love to introduce you to all of them. We will start with Carmen. Yeah. Carmen Medina. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, thank you very much for being on the show, Manish. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I'd like to thank you for your openness, um, your transparency, your willingness to expose stories that you hadn't mm -hmm. told anyone other than your closest mm -hmm. of friends. And and acknowledge you for your, your articulate expression of an explanation of the world that we're living in, in relation to sort of the, the, the data and the threats, what risk is in, the, in today's world, and the clarity that you've brought to this interview. And also, um, I think your curiosity, which is um, broader and deeper than maybe you and you can consider it to be. And certainly what I thought it would be when I first asked you to be on the show. Um, and I think it's manifest itself in many ways. And I just thank you for uh, being so open and honest with us. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, it's very kind of you to say thank you for the opportunity and for your very compassionate questions. Oh. I think these are difficult things to ask about, and you come from a place of compassion, and I think that's why I was able to be so candid. Well, thank you very much. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast player you listen to subscribe and rate. And if you like the show, please give us a five-star rating as it helps more people discover us. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, just visit us at theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. For now, be curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.